Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this with me. I'm excited to chat with you today about all things product. And also, I'm really curious about all your MIT awards and achievements. I give you full bragging rights, so you don't have to hold back. <laughs> okay, well, it's a long story. <laughs> Maybe you can cut some of it if I go too much. Go into it too much. But um, I, you know, I am, an ele- <laughs> I am primarily an electrical engineer. I um, went to MIT. I actually did start as a physics major there, but when I went to find undergraduate research, I found myself really reaching out to electrical engineering professors. I liked the hands-on work. Ended up staying there through grad school and finishing a PhD in the electrical engineering department. Um, my work uh, in grad school focused on um, both analog electronics and instrumentation systems and also power electronic systems and toward the later later years i started to focus more on the power electronics side of things that dovetailed pretty well with um the time period coming out of the recession and the focus on clean technology applications and i ended up sort of angling that toward clean tech applications and then sort of late in my graduate school career i got restless and now i know better about myself that it's because I'm relatively impatient as a, as a person and a personality and found myself wanting to step out of my comfort zone. Um, so as I was sort of starting to finish my PhD thesis work, I um, looked for ways to do that. And, and one was I uh, took a business class at MIT called Energy Ventures. It was like, you know, 2008, 2009, coming out of the recession, there was a lot of buzz, so to speak, about climate change and clean technology. Um, a lot of tailwind. The, there was even a, a lot of funding. And so, you know, I took this Energy Ventures course and um, we did, uh, at the end, we did sort of a, you know, a business plan. And that business plan we took, um, we took and, and entered it into a business plan competition called the Clean Energy Prize. And I had gotten paired up with somebody who happened to be in my lab. So I'm a circuits guy. Um, there happened to be a guy in my lab who was a material science guy working in the electrical engineering department. And we got paired up and we worked together on that business plan and then on the business plan competition. We did well in the, in the clean energy prize. And so then we um, found ourselves proposing against one of these federal government grants, a DOE grant for, this is the ARPA-E's first open FOA for energy storage technology. We converted everything that we had done to that point into a grant proposal for $5.5 million, just sort of writing it out of the basement of MIT in our spare time, and we won that grant. That's a pretty sizable grant, especially to sort of just um, win it as a um, company that's just getting started. That triggered the um, the beginning of the company, uh, which was initially FastCap Systems Corporation, and today we've rebranded as Nanoramic Laboratories. I think today we're still still the only um, company to have a high temperature rechargeable energy storage device, um, and we. 
succeeded in commercializing that. We designed it into systems. I, I was in, and in the meantime, we identified a beta market in aerospace and defense, which is sort of be a stepping stone. And then another market in consumer electronics, which would be another stepping stone. And then finally today we're into uh, re- really where our narrative arc was always pointing, uh, which was, um, which is clean tech and, and we're squarely into electric vehicles. Um, we've transferred a lot of that core technology we developed in the early years from that niche kind of energy storage supercapacitor technology into lithium ion batteries for electric vehicles. And we've, we've started to make a big uh, splash there. That, that's a very short form uh, <laughs> uh, history of the company and also some of my background. And there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more there as you can, as you can imagine. Yeah, no, definitely fascinating. And thank you for sharing that so succinctly. So you come from a engineering background. What was the catalyst or the enabler for you to become a founder? Because that's quite a, a shift in thinking and skill sets. I, I guess your business course had something to do with that. But how do you like maintain both that product engineering hat and founder hat at the same time? Is it a skill you've had to acquire, learn? Just curious. It's definitely been a steep learning curve. Um, I think I was being opportunistic when I co-founded the company in 2009 uh, when we won the original grant. Um, I I would say at, at, at that time also, it was not uncommon for, um, technical people like us to, uh, found companies. I think that's still something you see quite a lot. I think that at the time it was almost encouraged and, um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think there, there was a lot of crossover between sort of engineering and business sort of founders. Sometimes you partner, sometimes you don't. Um, when I, when I started with the company, actually, when we founded the company, I was still finishing my PhD for two years. So I, so I, it, it set up an interesting dynamic because I was part-time with the company while I finished my PhD. Uh, thanks to my thesis advisor, he, he was extremely, um, supportive of that. Um, and then when I came on full-time at the company, I was director of engineering, which was, which was a nice way to, 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 to really start um, with the company because it meant that I was really frontline on the, on the product design and in charge of that. Um, and also, you know, actively deploying the technology in the field. And so that was, that I think fit, fit me well. Um, but then, you know, what I would say is that I didn't, you know, I don't think that I really sort of took on a real founder's mentality until maybe, a little bit further down the line, um, I think there are a couple of as- couple of aspects um, going on in the background. There, one is that, like I think any founder who's listening to this, it, you know, there's a personality aspect that you sort of fill uh, vacuums of leadership, right? So whenever there's something that doesn't work, you sort of can't help but fix it. And if it's a it's a if it's because there's a vacuum of leadership, you end up leading, right? You you lead that to a solution um you fix the problem and that means that uh, especially in a company a startup company you're going to be exposed to all kinds of problems that are not just circuits problems um the most sort of notable type of problem uh outside of just technical ones is personnel issues right so this is something you never learn about even i would say in 
many business classes. You know, how do you manage actual human beings and motivate them and make them productive? How do you manage them when they're not <laughs> productive? Um, so that's certainly just a you know an example of an area of uh, skill set that you have to develop on really on the job. Um, but there are many many other examples like that that are non technical. And over time, and especially when there were big changes in the company, um, I had to learn a lot of those quickly. Um, and so I, you know, especially in the last six or seven years of the company, I have really sort of taken on that founder's mindset. And I think it starts with this is something that you you initiated, and it's something that you care about more than just a job, and you. Um, want it to be successful, uh, but maybe more sort of practically. If something's not going well, you want to fix that and move it forward, um, whether it's a tweak or, or a major or a major adjustment. Um, one of the things that characterized that for me was um, about five years into the company, you know, our alpha market was oil and gas drilling, and, and about that time, you don't remember, there was a, a major bust cycle in the oil and gas market. And when that happens in the oil and gas market, you're, you're, you don't sort of lose 20% of your sales. You don't sort of miss your sales projection growth for that year. Your customers go bankrupt. They disappear. Um, your sales go from something to zero uh, almost overnight. And um, for us as a vertically integrated uh, engineering and manufacturing oil and gas um, equipment provider and out of Boston, Massachusetts, um, it was, it was, um, you know, a, a little bit of a wake up call and also definitely a time for an adjustment. And we refocused, um, sort of right in that moment, our business model from what had become this vertically integrated supplier of, of, of oil and gas drilling systems to really the core technology and products, which are energy storage devices. Um, I also, um, at that time, I was sort of volunteered by the staff to step up and sort of take over um, sort of acting CEO role. And that was, uh, there, were, there, were, there were moments and days there where I, I um, you know, I was really outside of my comfort zone, um, but there was nobody else there, there to do it. Uh, you know, my co-founder had, was out of the picture at that point. Um, and so I, there was, there's a clear vacuum of leadership that I, that I had to fill. Um, and sometimes I say like, I've had an MBA on sort of double speed, right. Um, at least in those moments and you, you learn on the job and you, um, learn the hard way. And, you know, some of these lessons are ingrained in you in a way that, um, they can't be, they can't be otherwise. And so I think it's, it can be painful, but it can also be uh, very educational. You brought up a keyword there that I also want to get your opinion on. You mentioned co-founder folks that I've spoken to in my founders community. When I was interviewing them as part of like my research phase before opening up the community, one question came up quite often as a challenge was, how to manage a co-founder relationship. Perhaps you could share with other founders some lessons learned on how to manage a company with a co-founder because I'm sure that comes with its own challenges as mm -hmm. well. It does. Um, yeah, so what lessons can I think of? 
And I, you know, I think that, um, well, first and foremost, if you're going to have a co-founder, you've got to really get along with this person and you have to, it has to, yet it has to be somebody that you, you, you enjoy working with. I, I would, I would say that is like the threshold condition and, um, you know, uh, if there's any doubts about that, um, it's really better to sort of address that and, and at the beginning, um, so that, that's, I think everybody will say that's the biggest issue. Find somebody that you really, really work well with, um, and who you can mutually, who you have mutual, mutual respect with. Um, when you have, uh, you know, two co-founder like people in a company, it can feel crowded at the top, so to speak. And I think that it takes, I don't know, maybe some maturity to get sort of used to that um, and to not take things personally. Um, but you do have to sort of find your way in terms of who is responsible for what, what the roles are and how you define those. And I like to use the word personas. Uh, what is the persona that you um, are interested in and what is the persona that your co-founder has and how can you kind of draw separations between that? And then, you know, I think sort of related to that, at the end of the day, you really want to identify something that you care about, um, focus on that and do do a good job. Um, so whatever that may be, um, you know, the, and that can kind of help you define um, the roles between the, between the, the co-founders. Um, I think when, it can get messy when there's a lack of mutual respect. It can get messy when there are personalities that are difficult to deal with, which is not unusual. I mean, people who find themselves in these roles tend to have strongly expressed personality traits, right? It can get messy when um, there isn't, um, uh, you know, when there isn't a good sort of unspoken understanding of the, the separation of roles. And, you know, I, I would say too that keeping an open channel communication a casual asynchronous open channel communication is really important um, so that you know um, so that so that you can feel like you can speak your your mind openly and and that you have that level of trust and comfort with one another yeah it's a it's an undercovered topic I think I'm not sure how many companies have failed because of like bad relationships with the the co-founders. You know, if I would oversimplify it in my mind, it, I would use the analogy of like a relationship. If it doesn't work from the beginning, probably it's not going to work ever. And or do you take the uh, another approach of getting some outside counsel? Should your VC be involved in managing the relationship or making sure that you know things are going well between the co-founders? I'm I'm mainly speaking from my. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I, I'm mainly speaking from my own experiences, but I do know this is a common issue in startup companies, and and it can be a hidden, um, it can be a hidden source of sort of friction or slow, you know, um, sort of impediments for the company. It can also be something that really supports the company if it's working well, and it's not something that you could necessarily detect from the outside. But you you really want 
those kinds of people supporting one another, having brainstorming kind of discussions, um, you know, energizing each other. And if that's happening, it can be very powerful. If it's the other way and they're working against or sort of near each other or stepping on each other's feet or even undermining each other, it can kind of quietly really, really hurt the company. And so, you know, I think it's important to try to, if you are a co-founder, to acknowledge if something like that is the case and try to address it directly, uh, fix it, you know, because if you can't, if you don't fix it, you're not going to, you're not going to be successful. Maybe some simple advice would just be over communicate and leave egos behind and put the company first, be sort of altruistic to some degree. Yeah, I think um, sometimes pers- it can it can sort of bleed into uh, what could feel personal and you kind of always have to say, okay, what's the best thing for the company and what are the facts and what is the most productive thing to talk about now? Um, and if you can do that and kind of keep the integrity of the dyna- of the interactions going that way, then I think um, you can you can stay on the right track. Yeah, and just to summarize, I really liked your recommendation about defining the roles early on. I think that sounds really logical and practical and feels like that would work if you don't deviate from the agreement. It can. I, I, you have to understand it'll evolve too, and you'll learn about your own role as you as you grow. Right. So I, I think it comes down to finding something you care about, focusing on that and doing doing it well. And it's unlikely that both co-founders or multiple co-founders are going to sort of find the same. It's unlikely that they'll all find the same exact sort of description of that. And if you can focus on your strengths and let your co-founder take care of the things that you love less, it's also a good way to balance each other's skill sets out. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you do when you're both the same, but <laughs> yeah, that's 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 definitely that's definitely true, and I think that's that's for me at least that's always been the case. Um, I wanted to tap into specifically like your product and go to market superpowers based on reading through your your profile. I picked up a few things which I wanted to dive deeper into. So perhaps. We can walk through when you were in the early days of your startup and how you focused on the work of bringing products from concept to commercialization. Can we focus on the origin of concepts in the market and promotion? Because I think there's some overlap with SaaS products, which I think is the majority of my audience at this point. And I would like to uncover some inspiration for them to take into the software world. Yeah. So, and, you know, sometimes we can talk about sort of technology driven or market driven innovation. Right. And, um, and, you know, you'll also hear about disciplines like, or, uh, ways of thinking. Um, like, uh, if you take a Stanford business class, I'll teach you about design thinking. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, there are a lot of concepts there. I would say that we have uh, developed at Nanoramic a, a number of products over the, over the years, and there's been a mix of both market and technology-driven uh, innovation. Sometimes we develop the technology in the lab, and in fact, we um, provide our technology folks time to um, sort of tinker a prototype on new, new concepts in the lab. Um, I like to say, or we like to say that the comp- this company has so much IP that you could sort of pick it up off the floor 
Um, and that's, that's, that's almost literally the case at our company. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, we have experimented with, uh, product concept discovery over the years. And what it comes down to is in my mind is really sort of getting to a position where you can prototype and test the market with a concept. So for instance, in oil and gas drilling, we had five or six product concepts that we actually prototyped and de demonstrated um, at, at customer facilities. And one of those became something of, 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 a, of a lot of interest. Then late, later on, another one of them became really the, the sort of killer app. Um, and, and the other thing is that once, once you're at that point where you have something that you can interact with, um, with a customer, you, you know, a lot of our new product concepts come out of conversations with, um, with customers about existing products. Well, could you do this instead? And what we like to call this in our sort of product development ethos is, um, sensors so sensing the market how do you sense the market what are the sensors and what are the most effective ones you could read the news you could read market studies you could um see what your competitors are doing um you could prototype a new product and show it to a customer and have an interaction with them about what what would what would they be interested in we found over the years that that's the most effective sensor so we have an existing product maybe we're selling it to a customer they ask us about a different concept um, and then we formally evaluate that concept. So we have a process for evaluating new product concepts uh, that centers on feasibility analysis that, and it covers sort of all disciplines from technology approach to, uh, you know, go to market strategy and <clears throat> IP and legal considerations. Um, and so, so a, a lot of our co product concepts have been developed that way. Um, sort of just getting insight from, the folks on the front line who are the customers at the end of the day. That um, concept really dovetails really well or lines up really well with, and this is why I bring it up at the beginning with this concept of design thinking, showing a prototype to the market, getting feedback, iterating that, um, and improving it. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it kind of all, it, it's kind of all one and the same. Um, and so, you know, we have examples of sort of each of those um, along the spectrum from technology to market-driven innovation. Uh, but, you know, I think um, it, there isn't sort of one, one answer to this, um, but sort of being aware of how these, these concepts evolve, you know, come to be, and then having some discipline around how do you evaluate them um, so that you don't end up with a technology that is cool in the lab but doesn't, doesn't actually have a market, market fit. Great. And then I think it, makes perfect sense to segue into a go-to-market discussion, which sounds like it's also in your wheelhouse. I wanted to get your thoughts on the concept of go-to-market, especially if you're a startup in a new category, because technically there is no market. So like, how do you go to market when it doesn't exist? Yeah, I mean, if you think about examples as sort of, um, you know, the market coming to you, um, there are a number of examples of that, both in software and hardware. And obviously, Apple has always been the the big heart, the big you know the the biggest name example in in hardware. But I would also point out that Tesla um, in electric vehicles uh, definitely yeah. has um, developed a hardware product. I was just going to say, to and it also ties into your industry. That's right. If I really think about 
um, that approach for hardware companies um, and try to, to identify patterns, I, I would guess that um, you know there's a lot of risk in um, developing hardware products. Um, it takes a long time. It has these products have to work essentially 100 percent of the time. And there are a lot of intricacies that go into them. Um, and so if you um, take that approach that you're going to essentially build a, pro- a hardware product and, and the market has to come to you, um, to counteract that risk, you really need a lot of financial backing, right? And so then if you think about, well, Apple or Tesla, so in Apple's case, you know, I don't, you know, I think initially in the early days of Apple, um, they really kind of hit uh, a, um, hit a nail on on the head uh, with their initial products, and then later on in their in their business, they had um, famously um, uh, famously large sort of liquid assets and financial um, you know purchasing power, and so I think that they were able to sort of say the market needs this, we're going to develop this product, and then they're going to realize that they needed it. Um, in Tesla's case, you know, Elon Musk, I don't know that it's correct to say that he himself came with all of the financial backing directly, although he had, he had his own financial assets, but really what he came with was credibility. Um, so for him to access capital was far easier than it is for, for some, somebody else might be. And so he was able to create a market, um, that he sort of believed in philosophically that he envisioned and, and made it real. Uh, and it was not easy, right? Um, but you really need, I, I would say, you, you in at least in a hardware product company, you, you need a lot of access to purchasing power and financial uh, leverage to make that successful. Um, we've taken this approach of identify a product and, and study it um, to identify product market fit, um, develop it, uh, release initial releases proto, you know, as prototypes that you can sample to customers, get feedback and iterate, and then um, release to manufacturer, meaning we're going to show you that you can manufacture this. And we're either going to manufacture it or you're going to learn how to manufacture it. And, um, you know, I think that that for us has become what we call this sort of product development, product development machine that you can kind of iterate and cycle through. And as you get better at that, you can take it to higher and higher stakes. So we've gone from sort of a small market to medium markets and now to a very large market, uh, lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. Do you have a framework that you use over and over to bring new products to market? You touched a little bit on some of those things, but perhaps we could spend a couple more minutes like if you could walk us through your framework. Yeah, and so there's a lot of history in the company about what that process is and and what it used to be and you know, we've sort of experimented with all extremes of this for you know, stage gate and waterfall sort of product development to full scrum and agile product development and what we've found is there's somewhere in between you can kind of take aspects of of each philosophy and, and implement them. We, you know, we even have sort of a map that we print on the wall in our company. It's called the product development map. At its core is the sort of engineering and release process. So they're really only, uh, we wanted to minimize that as much as possible. So there's basically three releases. One is um, kickoff, which is just the project planning, uh, the end of the project planning stage. So the sort of deliverable from that is the project documents 
you know, which might be the quote or the contract proposal and, and everything in the feasibility study that goes with it and budget. And then there are two design releases that are required. One is intended to be a quicker release that shows a design that's promising that you can build and, and manufacture and sample to customers to get feedback. Um, and we call that the MVP and that language, you know, comes from the software world actually. Um, so it's a design that hasn't been fully qualified. We're transparent about that with the customer, but it's something that's, that's promising, that works, that meets the requirements, um, and that we can build and repeat. Um, and there's a release and review process around that that's formal that involves stakeholders, but the actual development work leading up to that is intentionally, um, is intention. It, it intentionally lacks structure um, for sort of rapid development. There's a little bit of structure, but it's it's not very rigid. So there's sort of tools and, and processes that the, the engineers use. Um, but until they get to the actual release, there's not too much formalism. And then the last release is what we call the release to manufacture. And that um, follows an, a formal internal qualification, which means you take your MVP design and you subject it to a battery of tests that prove that des- the design meets all of the requirements. And sort of in parallel with that, there's a process that we call the manufacturing readiness assessment. And it, it starts at the beginning of any product development, but it really sort of accelerates at the end. And it looks at things like supply chain risks, um, the ability to manufacture, to repeat with tolerances that are, that are practical, um, the ability to uh, use um, equipment that we can actually source, things like that. And so once you get to the release to manufacturer, you've essentially demonstrated that you can repeat. It's not only, this not only meets the requirements, but you can, um, you can repeat the build. Um, and, and at that point, you have a, a design file that's uh, fully qualified and, um, and that, you, know, that you, could, you can use to, to manufacture, you can use to teach a licensee how to manufacture. Um, and then after that, of course, sales, marketing, um, and, and may, maybe licensing. Um, so that, that's sort of the, but the, one of the core elements of that is feedback from the market. So at each of those releases, even the product, even the kickoff where you just finish the project documents, um, you, you have the ability to get feedback from the market. So maybe you're sampling hardware, maybe you're showing them a preliminary spec sheet, but you're able to show them something and you can get feedback and incorporate it into the product development process. And that's really where the sort of design thinking, prototyping and interacting with the market concept plays into our process. Um, at, that's the, the sort of core, core, and then I mentioned sensors. So on the sort of left side of the map is sensors. How do you identify new product concepts and then how do you evaluate and, and analyze them? And on the right side of the map is like what I mentioned, sales, manufacturing, and full culmination, which might be a license or even, a, even an asset sale. Would you say that customer feedback is at the heart of this process and framework? It is, but you got to be disciplined um, because you're not really trying Customer's to... Customer's not the always customer. right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess what I would say is you're not trying to make them feel good. You're really trying to get the intelligence from the market and you can get bad intelligence, right? If you ask a customer, for instance, if you ask an electronic component manufacturer a question like, what is the um, the device height requirement on this component? And every time it's, you'll find that every time you ask them that question, 
they will tell you a, a, a tougher requirement to meet. So if it used to be two millimeters, the next time you ask them, it's going to be 1.9. And the next time you ask them, it's going to be 1.8. That doesn't mean that that's actually what the market needs. If you, if you ask them 20 times, they're going to tell you it needs to be zero millimeters thick. And, and that's not actually what the market will, will support. The market will support something in there. Um, and so you need to have a way of being disciplined about um, analyzing that input. And so, and you know, one way that to do that is just not take one data point as a product requirement, but to actually go out and do your own research and get other sort of second opinions. Um, so we, you know, we um, we try to make sure not to sort of um, treat uh, customer comments lightly, but in, in sort of both senses, you know, don't take it as a whimsical. I'm going to now change my product requirements, but also make sure you pay attention to it because they might. They might be right about it. Yes, and I believe it was Henry Ford who said if you ask customers what they want, they would have asked for faster horses or something like that. I think good, good, fast, good, cheap, good, cheap, and fast good. or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, we're we're both butchering it, but hopefully everyone gets the idea. <laughs> so, where do you get your inspiration to be innovative? What does that process look like for you? Yeah, there are three, three. Com- there's a few different components, right? First of all, you have to have good, innovative, and creative people around you, right? Uh, that's one thing. They have to be motivated, so they have to be doing something that they care about. Um, I think we work on things that people care about that think that they think are worthwhile, and so that brings energy into creativity. Um, and then you have to be faced with a hard problem, right? A customer says this is not acceptable, this is not good enough, or this is our requirement, and maybe we maybe we have to find a way to meet that requirement. And um, almost 100% of the time, there's a solution that you can come up with. Um, and sometimes it's a solution that nobody else has come up with, right? Um, and you may not even realize that until later, that you've invented something or you've come up with a solution that nobody else has, has come up with in the past. Um but you know, I think if you put those ingredients together, so to speak, that you just you just see you see innovation continuously. We see that um, you'll see that reflected in our uh, patent portfolio. In fact, from the very beginning, we've had to we've built um, IP processes into our product development because we're just constantly generating innovations and inventions. Perhaps wrapping up here, I think you said earlier about having all this IP that you can pick up off the floor, you have to obviously have a balance between being super creative, innovative, but at the same time being productive and generating revenue and you know not getting sidetracked by too much innovation, I guess. You do. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we harp on our process for commercializing products. That's one of the, we build... Um, clear visibility into priorities um, into everything that we do. Um, you have to be doing what you're doing on a day-to-day basis for for a reason, and the reason is to get, you know, finish, get to an endpoint, move on to the next thing, uh, not to sort of try this, try that. Um, so, you know, that that is also a continuous process, but we try to build in tools and processes and methods for. Um, for keeping every, everything focused on, on the end goal. Well, I can clearly talk to you about this stuff for hours and <laughs> we can go down many rabbit holes, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
if anybody would like to reach out to you and pick your brain on any of these topics, where would the best place for them to reach out? Well, first of all, you can always find information about our company at nanoramic.com. So it's think of it as panoramic with nano on the beginning. So nanoramic.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to message me. This was a good conversation. I really appreciated it. Cool. So thanks a lot, Brendan. Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.